This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. I interrupt this episode to report some breaking news. Federal investigators in Manhattan executed a search warrant on Wednesday at the Upper East Side apartment of, yeah, Rudy Giuliani. The noonday raid of the former New York City's mayor's apartment dramatically escalates the criminal investigation into Mr. Giuliani's dealings in Ukraine. Authorities are said to have seized his electronic devices and hauled away boxes of materials relevant to the growing case. Breaking news out of Manhattan right now. The FBI has just raided the apartment of former New York mayor and close Trump confidant Rudy Giuliani. It's five o'clock in New York. Grenade detonation this morning, New York City, as FBI agents raided the home and office of Rudy Giuliani, seizing his phone and electronic devices. Today's development signaling a major turning point in the investigation by the Southern District of New York, which is looking into Giuliani's dealings with Ukrainians. Executing a search warrant is a provocative step for prosecutors to make against any attorney, let alone a lawyer for the former president of the United States, and marks a watershed moment for bringing Giuliani to justice for his wanton criminality on behalf of Donald Trump. You know, Rudy Giuliani is a great patriot. He does these things, he just loves this country, and they raid his apartment. It's like, uh, so unfair and such a double, it's like a double standard, like I don't think anybody's ever seen before. The federal authorities have been largely focused on whether Giuliani illegally lobbied the Trump administration in 2019 on behalf of Ukrainian officials and oligarchs, who at the same time were helping him search for dirt on Donald Trump's political rivals, including President Biden, who was then a leading candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. This opens Pandora's box about the potential for foreign money coming into the 2016 campaign, foreign money funding an effort to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and potentially Hunter Biden. And let's not forget, who does Victoria Tonsig represent, among others? A guy by the name of Dmitry Firtash. Who is he? A Ukrainian oligarch closely tied to Putin and Russia. Don't be surprised if investigators want to find out if Russian money was getting into the campaign in 2016. The United States Attorney's Office in Manhattan and the FBI had for months sought to secure a search warrant for Mr. Giuliani's phones. But under the Trump administration, senior political appointees in the Justice Department, as well as Attorney General William Barr himself, repeatedly sought to block investigations into Giuliani or frankly anyone allied with the former president. Only after Merrick Garland was appointed AG did the Justice Department begin to cooperate in bringing Rudy to justice by serving the search warrant. Well, I guess what is disturbing to me is if there was probable cause to believe that there was evidence of a crime uh, at the Giuliani's business or home last year uh, and Bill Barr's Justice Department wouldn't do anything about it, uh, it's another indication of politicization at the very top of the Justice Department. We know that other decisions on sentencing, for example, with Roger Stone or even dismissing whole cases against Mike Flynn were made on the basis of politics uh, by Bill Barr. And this appears to be yet another example. While the warrant is not an explicit writ of guilt for Giuliani, where there's smoke, there's fucking fire. 
For years, legal experts have marveled at the ability for Rudy to avoid accountability for his brazen activities, both at home and abroad. Rudy Giuliani was probably the single most uninformed and unreliable source of information imaginable. And as we see this play out now, he was a conduit of information for Russian intelligence, which is absolutely astonishing. If you just stop there, Russian intelligence was influencing the information that Rudy Giuliani was feeding to the Justice Department to try to seek dirt on a political opponent of the President of the United States. Shut up. Okay, hold on. Shut up. Hold you on. don't know Everybody. what you're talking Ooh. about. Chris, Chris, you don't Chris, know Chris, what you're Chris, talking Chris. about, idiot. It was accepted as a matter of course that he was being protected by the former president from prosecution. But now, with Trump gone, Rudy is open season and prosecutors are ready to pounce. To get a warrant, investigators need to persuade a judge that they have sufficient reason to believe that a crime was committed and that the search would turn up evidence of the crime. You gotta relax, Mr. Trump. We got nothing to worry about. Nobody's gonna find out about our illegal side dealings with the Ukraine. Good. Or how we tried to cover up those side dealings. Great. Or how we plan to cover up the cover-up. Rudy, Rudy, where are you right now? I'm on CNN right now. <laughs> Let's rewind for a moment and look at how Rudy ended up with his home being torn apart by the feds. Rudy Giuliani under fire for his plan to travel to Ukraine and actively push for investigations that could help the president's re-election. The Ukrainians brought me substantial evidence of Ukrainian collusion with Hillary Clinton. I think Rudy has been a great crime fighter. He looks for corruption wherever he goes. The murkiness and corruption of the Ukrainian political system is being weaponized. It's what could be called kind of uh, shadow, shadow politics. The investigation into Rudy grew out of a case against two Soviet-born men who aided his mission in Ukraine to unearth damaging information about President Biden and his son Hunter, who was on the board of a Ukraine energy company. One thing from them. I don't ask for a result. I ask for an investigation. I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. Trump who feared facing Biden from the beginning in the general election, was determined to try and knock him out early. That there would be some hidden evidence of corruption proved tantalizing to Trump. But it also led to his impeachment. Somehow Rudy skated above it all. In fact, I'm a legitimate whistleblower. I have, I have uncovered corruption that this Washington swamp has been covering up effectively for years. And his State Department, you know, asked me to do this. So, Mike, if you're unhappy with me, I'm sorry, but I accomplished my mission. And I have no idea if he's unhappy with me or not. I frankly don't care. At the heart of this, beyond the shady business dealings and whatever prosecutors dig up from his devices, which I bet will be fucking massive, Rudy was many things but discreet and careful do not apply. The man was a walking shit show whenever he appeared on television or even opened his mouth. The term Rudy Special was invented just for this very fact. How many fingers do I got up? The man went from America's mayor holding us together through the dramatic days following 9-11 to a national embarrassment and a personal errand boy for the most corrupt president in American history. While always a bit peculiar, 
His hatred of ferrets and his predilection for cross-dressing, notwithstanding his latest incarnation, is almost cartoonish in its defense of the truly indefensible. Not to mention his ability to humiliate himself on a colossal fucking scale between the farting, the dripping face, the drunken television appearances, and his absurd Borat encounter where he was caught literally red-handed in pre-masturbation like some pervy panty sniffer out on the prowl. (laughs) Don't forget that while in the Ukraine, Rudy became a mark for Russian intelligence, a useful idiot abroad with a briefcase of cash courtesy of right-wing donors who delighted in playing cloak and dagger. As he was pressuring Ukrainian officials to investigate the Bidens, Giuliani became fixated on removing the ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, whom he saw as an obstacle to those efforts. I do not understand Mr. Giuliani's motives for attacking me, nor can I offer an opinion on whether he believed the allegations he spread about me. Mr. Giuliani should have known those claims were suspect, coming as they reportedly did from individuals with questionable motives and with reason to believe that their political and financial ambitions would be stymied by our anti-corruption policy. At the urging of Mr. Giuliani and other Republicans, Trump ultimately ousted Mr. Yovanovitch. But under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, it is a federal crime to try to influence the United States government at the request or direction of a foreign official without disclosing it to the Justice Department. What are they doing? What the heck? He didn't know? He didn't know? I love Rudy, but... They, they better have an explanation for that. That's a, that's a, that's a problem. It was shocking. It's a major screw-up. An appalling thing to watch. I liken it to a murder-suicide. As the investigation heated up last summer, prosecutors and FBI agents in Manhattan were preparing to seek the search warrant for Mr. Giuliani's records about his efforts to remove the ambassador. But they first had to notify Justice Department officials in Washington, according to people with knowledge of the matter. And that's ultimately where justice went to die, as Bill Barr and Trump political appointees in justice put their thumb on the scale to prevent Rudy's investigation from progressing. Anybody, any American, whether you're red or blue, should be extremely disturbed by what happened here today, by the continued politicization of the Justice Department. This is disgusting. This is absolutely absurd, and it's the continued of the Justice Department that we have seen. And it has to stop. If this can happen to the former president's lawyer, this can happen to any American. Enough is enough. The only piece of evidence that they did not take up there today was the only piece of incriminating evidence that is in there. And it does not belong to my father. It belongs to the current president's son. Under long-standing practice, the Justice Department generally tries to avoid taking aggressive investigative actions within 60 days of an election if those actions could affect the outcome of the vote. So, prosecutors in Manhattan waited out the election. But those same political appointees in Trump's Justice Department once more blocked any attempts to execute a search warrant on Giuliani. This was further muddied by the fact that Trump was still contesting the election. Has your reputation been injured on the job? Were you the victim of a crime you committed? Are you facing serious legal trouble? And do you want to make it worse? If so, call 
Giuliani and Associates. We want to make you our client and accomplice. Hi, I'm Pizzarat Senior Rudy Giuliani, the only lawyer who's on your side and off his meds. And you may have heard of my associates as they were recently arrested for crimes against America. Their actual human names are Lev Parnas hey. and Igor Fruman. Hey, you guys! And they're not just handsome, they're ready to work for you. Fraud! Bribery! Conspiracy! Money laundering! Reason! We've done it all, which means we know how to get you out of it. It now makes greater sense why Rudy led the charge to overturn the election with such malignant zeal. Trump was protecting him from a search warrant and God knows what else. Knowing Donald Trump as well as I do, I have zero doubt that he was holding the search warrant over Rudy's head as leverage to force him into leading the election fight. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. But with Trump gone from the White House and the corrupt political appointees at justice unable to subvert the course of justice, the wheels for moving against Giuliani picked up post-inauguration. This is just the beginning, though, folks. As with anything involving Rudy, it's never boring. We're also going to now see just how loyal he is to Trump. Facing indictment in prison, Rudy has a vault full of compromise on Trump that he can unleash to save himself. Good luck, pal. You're going to need it. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind And now for the main event. I know it's difficult to think about anything beyond the prospect of Rudy and Donald sharing a prison cell together, but you can never count Donald Trump out for the count. The man has nine lives and the rare ability to avoid any sense of accountability whatsoever. There's also another more insidious fact. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. It may feel like a new day in Washington as the Biden administration works diligently to execute a progressive vision that has won plaudits from even the most skeptical of his liberal critics. But Trumpism as an ideology is on the march as Trumpian candidates take over state government and push through regressive voter legislation and anti-protest laws that have their genesis in Donald Trump's own lies and conspiracies that they have now become legislation points to the frightening permanence of a MAGA constituency in both state and local government. My next guest on Maya Culpa joins us today to discuss the legacy of Trumpism as it metastasized from a cult of personality into something far more insidious. Greg Sargent, as an opinion columnist and writer of the influential Plumline blog for the Washington Post, had spent the last four years chronicling how Trump and his henchmen betrayed the country and ushered in a new era of toxic politics more reminiscent of cage fighting than electoral democracy. It is an ideology void of meaning and truly nihilistic at its core. The only common ethos amongst MAGA loyalists is derangement. Or as Ed Kilgore of New York Magazine wrote... 
a systematic rejection of verifiable reality in favor of ideological systems that interpret everything according to an antagonistic depiction of the left as virtually demonic. It stands for nothing other than what's it against and wallows in what Sargent calls conspiracism. While Sargent and I spoke just before today's events, our conversation gets to the heart of what's truly at stake. So let's listen now to that conversation. So yesterday, you tweeted a column by your Washington Post colleague, Jennifer Rubin, that began, and I quote, The Republican Party seems to be getting worse. In some cases, it has exceeded the level of dishonesty, bigotry, and anti-democratic fervor that it displayed when its MAGA cult leader was in office. Do you see a bottom to the GOP's devolution, or will there only be a reckoning if they continue to lose at the polls? Well, I have to say one of the things that worries me the most right now is that they can win in 2022 without moderating even in the slightest and even without being part of the mainstream conversation about the country's biggest problems at all. They're essentially checking out of these big conversations and just sort of talking to their own people day in and day out. It's all Dr. Seuss and so forth. And what I worry about is that they're essentially banking on anti-majoritarian tactics around the country, voter suppression and gerrymandering to win anyway. And where are we if they are able to take back power without moderating in the slightest and without even participating in the conversation about the country's biggest challenges? Well, why don't you explain to my listeners, if you would, about the whole issue? Because it's I was watching it all morning long about the gerrymandering and how how it's now affecting where the House of Representatives could be in 2021. Um, I mean, they're talking about potentially loss of seats uh, by Democrats, simply the way that they draw the lines. So if you would explain to my listeners, my listeners, the entire concept regarding the gerrymandering, how come it's now a problem, despite the fact it was done under the Trump administration. I believe the numbers are potentially 218 Democrats to 212 Republicans. If you would give us some of your knowledge. Well, so, you know, every 10 years, roughly, and it sort of varies a little here and there, but they redraw the lines for congressional districts. The state legislatures tend to do this, although in some states there are independent commissions and there are variations in the law. In some states, republic uh, governors can veto maps drawn by the state legislatures if they're unfair. In other places, they can't. The basic problem for Democrats right now is that Republicans control a lot of state legislatures. And, you know, about the census, it's actually turning out that it it wasn't as bad as I think a lot of people expected. There's sort of two countervailing things here. One is that a few seats may be shifting to the Republicans in, in certain states. But over the long term, with the population shifting to the Sun Belt, where Democrats are actually starting to gain strength, I look at how they did in Colorado and Arizona, for instance, that could mitigate it over time. But anyway, to answer your question, this year, state legislatures will redraw the maps for the congressional districts. And Republicans are openly saying that if they can use extreme gerrymanders, they can win back the House that way. And amazingly, some experts are even saying that even if Democrats win the national House popular vote, Republicans could still take the House. 
which is a rarity, but it's sort of an amazing thing. And to me, what's so terrible about this is that it's occurring in this larger context where Republicans are just essentially not not trying to moderate in any way after what we've seen over the past four years. They're just counting on these tactics, this, these anti-democratic to win back power. Yeah, and it doesn't seem as if, though, that they're being successful at it, right? So, like, if hypothetically we decided to start a game, we're going to call it the Tournament of Assholes, right? Why? Because as I was saying to you, you know, um, in quoting your colleague, um, Jennifer Rubin, I mean, the dishonesty, the bigotry, the anti-democratic fervor, right? So if you had to play Tournament of Assholes, and let's just bring it down so that we don't spend too much time on them, we'll make it into the quarterfinals, right? Obviously, Josh Hawley has to be in there, right? Ron Johnson, Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Borbet, um, and just name another one. Let's even say Matt Gates. Right. And so that'll be our final eight assholes for the tournament of assholes. Who would you you know, who do you think would end up winning this tournament? <laughs> Josh Hawley, probably. He's he's the most slippery of them all. You, you think <laughs> he's a Donald Trump 2.0? Because I don't see him as uh, I'm going to be honest. All right. I know Donald Trump and I know him well. And I know the let's say it the. Um, ability that Donald has in order to bring people into the cult. I don't see Josh Hawley as being a cult leader. I just see him as being an asshole. Well, it's interesting because he seems to think he can kind of capture that Trumpist magic by going on about woke corporations and so forth. Today, he had a, I think it was either today or yesterday, but he had a tweet essentially saying, the woke media doesn't want you to buy my book. Prove to them that, you know, screw them over by buying my book. And the, the level of grift is so remarkable to me, right? The contempt he had for his own followers to try and pull such a transparent scab, right? But to me, that sort of talk isn't going to capture that Trumpist magic the way Trump did. I, I, you know, I, I, I remember, I think you said in one of your, maybe in your testimony that you talked about Trump's uh, charisma. I'm kind of interested in that because let me tell I used to talk to, to Donald back in the 90s when I was at the New York Observer. And here's where we could have a little fun. Um, you know, I, I would call up his office covering some real estate deal or something like that. And he'd get right on the phone, just like that, right? All you had to do was call his office. He always wanted to talk. And back then, he was kind of all, you know, the same kind of bluster, pattern, and so forth. But I never got the sense that there was this kind of real dark thing going on, the real authoritarianism and the white nationalism and the racism I know there was the Central Park stuff that he did, which kind of hinted at that. When your experience of him, when did you start to really see that stuff? It was it was around the time that he descended the escalator, and he decided that he was going to disparage Mexicans. That he was going to state that all Mexicans are rapists, racists, that they're murderers, drug dealers. But don't worry, some of them are good, right? That's when I realized that there's a very dark side to Trump. Now, Trump always did shit to promote himself, which is why he picked up your phone call as quickly as he did. But 
And people get angry at me all the time. Oh, you were an enabler of Donald Trump. You did his dirty work. Yes, we didn't pay legal bills. Yes, we stiffed contractors, blah, blah, blah. But the things that they tried to make it seem that I was involved with, I just wasn't because that's not what the Trump organization was. But as he started to realize from the Obama days, right, which is when the rise of birtherism and he became the birther in chief, he realized that there is a group and he called them the silent majority of individuals that really have a problem with anyone that is not white, that they want to retain their white privilege. And it was that knowledge that he gained from the birtherism that then propelled him to saying the stupid shit that he did, whether it was about Mexico, whether it was about Muslims, whether it was about, you know, um, you, you name it, anybody that, that's, that's out there that, you know, certainly recalls, you know, Captain Chaos's nonsense on a daily basis. All he would do is disparage people on a daily basis for what? In order to, again, solidify that we'll call it 26, 27, 28% of the population that is afraid of change. Very interesting. You know, there was a great documentary that just aired on Roy Cohn, and obviously Trump has a history with him. And, and the way Roy Cohn just sort of created the, this sort of universe of enemies in an instrumental way really reminded me of, of the way Trump often operates. It's almost as if once he's picked a path, that anyone who criticizes it becomes kind of a useful foil in some sense. And it just continues down the spiral into ever more darkness. And it just, it, I mean, you probably saw that up close when he was in the middle of serious litigation and stuff. I would think, you know, he would decide that the opponents in the litigation were something more than just opponents in the litigation, right? It's a bit of a psychosis. Right. There. So remember that Donald Trump does not, he does not learn from reading. He learns from listening. He has no attention span to sit down, to read a book, to study, whether it's history. And so he had a great teacher in Roy Cohn. It was basically, watch what I'm doing and copy me. Deny, 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 right? Lie, lie, lie. Attack, 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 and never display weakness, and so that's what he did. Now, remember, he inherited a ton, a shit ton of money from his father, Fred. And so if you ever look to see the various litigation that Donald Trump was involved in, you're not going to see Donald Trump picking on individuals with more money than him or picking on corporations that could easily bury him financially. He went after the little guy. And yet it's the little guy that finds Trump to be the most appealing, which is how he ended up winning in 2016, which nobody thought was possible. He didn't stiff, let's say, OK, Jeff Bezos wasn't around, but the Bill Gates of the world or the Mark Cubans of the world. Mark Cuban would have eaten him up for lunch, for lunch. Right. So he didn't fight with Cuban. And when they did, it was verbal spars over whose television show was better. Right. Petty, petty bullshit. But he would never legally take on somebody like a Mark Cuban because Cuban would wreck him. 
And he knows that. And so he picked on the little guy. He would pick on the person that couldn't afford the litigation against him. That The fact that that person had to retain counsel to defend an action against them would put them in bankruptcy. That's the person that Donald Trump picked on because he's a bully. He's a, he's a bully until you stand up to somebody who's your size or bigger and then you get, as Mike Tyson used to say, right? You're you're only as, you're only as tough until I punch you in the fucking mouth. Yeah, yeah. I just I, I've always been curious about this, but you were probably there. You, you probably have an insight into this. Did he want to win in 2016? So the answer is, when we started the campaign, it was not a campaign to actually win. It was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. The fact that he started to climb in the polls, and he started to do better and better, which is when we changed tactics. And we decided that the only way to make him to the Republican nominee is we have to go after those individuals that posed a threat to him, the Marco Rubios of the world, the Ted Cruz's of the world. And that's what we did using David Pecker um, as the, you know, as the source for which to sort of change things. Um, And David was not just a willing participant, but he was an influencer of Trump in terms of, like, for example, having Ted Cruz's father on the front page of all of the AMI magazines and newspapers, you know, showing Ted Cruz's father with Lee Harvey Oswald um, and basically pinning the Kennedy assassination on him. But he did not want to win. He did not expect to win. And how you know he didn't expect to win? Because he did not even have a speech prepared for election night. It was only until about 10 o'clock at night. He wasn't even at the, you know, at the function. He wasn't at the hotel. He had nothing there. So he now had to come up with some cockamamie, long, drawn out, talk about how great I am. Oh, we're winning everything. We're winning everything. This is the greatest. This is the, we're the greatest. I'm the greatest, blah, 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 right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that um, a guy who has so many character flaws could actually pull something like this off. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. Tuesday's episode with investigator Ed Calderon is insane. He spends the entire hour telling incredible stories about surviving the Mexican drug war and doing battle with the cartels. Definitely don't miss it. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's interview with action sports legend and MTV star Rob Durdick. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the February 18, 2021 episode with a cult deprogrammer who describes helping families get their loved ones out of QAnon. It's fascinating and ultimately heartbreaking. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. 
Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But Greg, let me move forward on this. I recently put forth the argument on this show that Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is now an ideology in winning the war as Trumpian candidates take over state government and push through regressive voter legislation and anti-protest laws that have their genesis in his lies and his conspiracies. Now, that they have now become legislation points to the frightening permanence of a MAGA constituency in state and local governments. If you would, discuss this with me and my listeners. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think is a a really, really alarming development is that Republicans who actually vouched for the integrity of the outcome of the election now have the crosshairs on them all over the country. Now, you know, people often say things like, oh, Trump is just a symptom of a deeper rot and so forth in the Republican Party. And I think that that's largely true. But ask yourself this, and and your listeners could ask themselves this, too. In 2012, did any Republicans who stood up for the who vouched for the integrity of Mitt Romney's loss and Barack Obama's win face primaries? I can't think of any. Can you? I cannot. Right. All of a sudden, I cannot. So, you know, Trump brought his own poison to the brew. He dumped a lot of poison into the vat there. You know, the Republican vat of point that was already pretty poisonous. But Trump added his own poison. And look, in Georgia, for instance, you've got two guys, uh, Kemp and and Raffensperger. Kemp is the governor. Raffensperger is the secretary of state. They both vouched for the integrity of the election. Good for them. They were under tremendous pressure not to do that. And Trump actually tried to strong arm Raffensperger into throwing the election, as we've heard from this audio. But now they're they're both really getting hammered. And and the candidate who's running against Raffensperger, the secretary of state, who's been endorsed by Trump, his explicit argument is that he will use his power to try and overturn the next result that Republicans don't like whereas Raffensperger wouldn't do that. So now it's become an important badge in the Republican Party to be willing to overturn elections. Now, I don't, I don't want to say that this applies to all Republicans. Plenty of them, you know, there are a lot of Republicans who did the right thing. There are plenty of Republican office uh, election officials around the country who genuinely want to make the system work and so forth, and we saw that. But it's clear that over over and over we're seeing that more and more Republicans feel the need to now adopt the position that it's okay to overturn results that you don't like. And that's but that's only one aspect of it. Let's now take it to issues that I think are more grave and more destructive to American democracy than an election having an individual like Trump get involved in going 
after them and trying to convince his constituency to vote for whoever, you know, that's against the person that didn't vote to overturn the election on his behalf. But I'm talking about things like regressive voter legislation. I mean, the whole fight that we've been involved with as a country, right, other than this COVID pandemic, is the disenfranchisement of minority voters, about black and brown voters. And yet now you have this group of maniacs that are trying to understand Trumpism because they don't understand it. And I said that at the House Oversight Committee. I know what you're doing. I know the game you're playing. And I know it because I wrote the playbook. So don't run the play on the play on me, right? I know the defense onto it. But the problem is these idiots don't. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to be Trumpier than Trump himself. And so they say and they're doing these crazy things like the voter, you know, like the, um, you know, this voter disenfranchisement and these anti-protest laws, you know, all of this regressive voter legislation. You know, to me, I don't see how they could end up winning. And when they do, they're just like the Marjorie Taylor Greens. They're sort of excommunicated from the club, even though that they have the office at the moment. But my belief is that, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think she's short-lived. And I don't care what state she's from. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's right. Uh, like I say, uh, like I said earlier, I, I, I'm pretty worried that Republicans will be able to win using these tactics. And that will actually validate the approach, right? So now they're... You know, you got to remember that the voter suppression stuff for Republicans really picked up right after 2010. It was after in the 2010 elections, Republicans won uh, state legislatures across the country. Right. And Obama's victory, which was kind of powered by this kind of unprecedentedly multiracial coalition with a lot of young voters, I think really scared a lot of Republicans in terms of demographics. They started to think, holy shit, you know, we're on the demo, we're losing the demographics game. We're we're in some real trouble here. And so you started to see the voter suppression stuff really kick in in the 2010s, but now it's actually getting worse. And layered on top of that is the justification that the election was stolen from Trump. So the whole thing continues to radicalize. And I I, I don't know. I'm I don't know whether there's a price to be paid for this. Maybe the occasional Marjorie Taylor Greene eventually loses. Look, they lost Georgia. That was a that was a you know clear penalty that they paid because of the insert you know the the um, the efforts by Trump to overturn the election and so forth. That clearly contributed to the loss of the Senate. So yeah, there are definitely sometimes electoral uh, prices. And by the way, we should probably note that the reason that, that there are prices like that is that. Democrats tend to counter-mobilize against that kind of threat against democracy. So we got to hope that happens. But I, I worry that even if the occasional Marjorie Taylor Greene loses, you still see the Republican Party essentially validated in its strategy of going even more radical. Well, I agree with you 100%, Craig, except I'm not in the business of hope. And I believe that in order to prevent um, you know, these ridiculous Trumpism ideological flaws— I think what what the Democrats have to do is they have to try to go back to what Obama was so successful in doing, and that's to mobilize and to win 
the black and brown community and entice them to make sure that they get out and vote. Because historically, they're just not a big voting block based upon their numbers. And if, in fact, that they became more active in the, in the process, I believe that we can take all of this back, that it would not be as close as it is right now in the House of 218 to 212. I don't believe that. And I think that that's happening. I think that there's so many now great and powerful voices in the black and brown community that I think we're going to see um, the exact opposite, the antidote to Trumpism. At least that's what I would like to see. Now, there's also been, Greg, a significant GOP pushback of late involving President Biden's desire to raise taxes on the ultra rich as well as tax capital gains, the same as you have um, the taxation for income. Now, these measures would pay for many of the administration's most ambitious social programs like free community college as well as the infrastructure bill. In your column yesterday, you wrote, and I quote, Kevin McCarthy and Chris Christie now claim tax hikes on the rich, including capital gains, are socialism. This is dumb, but it points to a bigger lie, right? Um, you know, what, whatever you think about tax hikes depart from a natural free market baseline, it's nonsense. Discuss this with me and what you meant. Yeah, sure. So, so Christie went out there uh, over the weekend and said something like, um, raising taxes on capital gains is socialism and constitutes redistribution of wealth. And of course, that's ridiculous because we set, we've, we've historically taxed capital gains at a far lower rate than we tax labor. So that's a policy choice we make. It's, it's not like raising taxes on capital gains departs from some natural baseline that was handed down by, from the heavens, right? It, it's raising taxes against the previous tax rate that we set ourselves. And so I think Republicans don't want people to understand that the current distribution has resulted from a whole series of policy choices. And by the way, Democrats have, have also contributed some bad stuff to that as well. But, you know, I, I don't I don't see how they win this argument right now. They're they're in a terrible spot because of mainly because of the coronavirus. Right. The pandemic has sort of exposed for all to see how screwed over some people are by our, you know, previous economic arrangements. You have essential workers who we suddenly relied on more, more visibly than ever out there on the front lines of having to expose themselves to greater risks, even as they're getting very low pay. I think we're in a moment where people are understanding that big change is necessary and that for the past 40 years or so, the very top have really kind of rigged the rules in their own favor in a way that can now be undone. Yeah, I mean, you start to take a look at some of these individuals that don't even take cash anymore. They take they take stock, and since it's not realized, they don't pay. They don't pay any tax on it. Yet, of course, their net worth goes up one billion to two billion to eight billion to twenty billion, and so on and so forth. It's just not. It's not taxed. Now, they'll make the argument that they don't have the actual liquidity within which to even buy a cup of coffee, despite the fact that they just took options or they took their stock instead of pay to the tune of a billion dollars, that they can't use 
that hypothet that would call it phantom income, right, to pay for a cup of coffee. Now, I call bullshit on that because when you have a stock portfolio worth X number of billions of dollars, there's not a bank that's not going to loan you money against it, which is not taxable. And so you're right. There are all of these various different games that you can play, which is why, for example, when Trump paid $750 for 2015, 2016, or 2016, 2017, whatever the tax years were, I paid over $3 million. And yet I end up with tax evasion charges on a million dollars, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's the small guy. It's the working guy that's, and that pays more. When you start to see secretaries and, you know, um, school teachers and firemen and policemen paying more money than Donald Trump per year in taxes, you know the system is fucked. Can I ask you, since you know this whole world so well, there's been a lot of speculation about Trump and the the tax cut he signed in 2017 and how much he might have personally profited off that. I wouldn't say that that was his driving motive necessarily, but I'd be curious to know if you have a general sense of of how much uh, the 2017 tax cuts might have profited Trump and his family. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. You know, Donald Trump, when it came to finances, as we all know, uh, was extremely tight-lipped. It was him, it was Alan Weisselberg, and Mazers, the accounting firm, that basically saw everything and did everything. If I got called in for anything, it was simply based upon either a project I was working on or something that else, some other task he assigned to me, and that they needed a very quick answer on something. But as it relates to, uh, to that, the answer to that is no. Donald Trump didn't have a plan for anything, right? It was just appease your base, appease your, your money guys. It's like no different to why he ended up moving the embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, not because he cares about Israel, not because he has some sort of an affection for Jews. It's not true. He did it so that he could get Sheldon Adelson's money. That's all that it was. Sheldon Adelson basically paid for it. And he wanted that money going into the RNC. Donald Trump is a transactional thinker. He can't think past his nose, which is why he would be a horrible chess player. That's just not how he thinks. It's let me just deal with what I have in front of my nose and I'll just bullshit the rest, you know, um, away to anybody that's willing to listen to it. And when he was president and when he had 100 million followers on social media, he just kept repeating the same line, very Stalinistic, over and over and over again. Why? Because the more you say something, true or false, the more people will accept it as being truth. And then they start to repeat it. And that's the danger of Trump. And that's the danger of Trumpism. But, um, Greg, let me move on here. In response to Kevin McCarthy's ridiculous revisionist interview with Fox News' Chris Wallace over the weekend, you wrote the following, and I quote, What's amazing about Kevin McCarthy whitewashing January 6th by pretending Trump didn't know what was happening is that Trump basically told McCarthy that if the mob got to him, it was his own fault. Now, CNN's Chris Saliza says that McCarthy's stance is motivated purely by survival. And he wrote, in a party in which untruth about the election and January 6th has run rampant, the only way for McCarthy to hold on to power is to tell you that what you saw and heard is not what you saw and heard. 
if you would, unpack this for my listeners for a moment. When does this all stop? I mean, when does this bullshit just come to an end and the GOP will regain its sanity or at least accept basic reality? Well, you know, I, I think the Republicans are, are doing this largely because of who, who Trump voters are. And this sort of has been missing from the discussion a lot. We, we treat this often as, oh, Republicans are just trying to keep Trump happy. But it's not just Trump, right? It's the look, he Trump brought in a whole new demographic into the Republican Party, into the Republican coalition. And there's no denying that he was very successful at that. He mobilized a certain type of low propensity conservative voter who really probably felt just shut out from the process, didn't have agency and made them feel like they could empower themselves by supporting him. And I think in some ways that's a good thing. He brought people into the process that weren't there before. But right now, the calculation that Republicans seem to be making is that they will lose that demographic if they don't continue to support the big lie and continue to spout sort of the Trumpist line. I think Lindsey Graham was actually kind of pretty clear on this recently when he said something along the lines of, you know, we can't succeed going forward without Trump. What he meant is that we can't succeed without that Trump demographic. And so I think McCarthy, in addition to watching his own back in the among the House Republicans, right? And there are a lot of crazies in there who would, who would go, go after him if he departed from the line, right? They also have to figure out how to keep that Trump voter demographic mobilized for 2022. And what's really incredible is that they've decided that the way to do that is to continue the big lie about the election's outcome. And they may be right. Maybe that is what it takes to keep that demographic mobilized. I don't know what that means. It's not good, but that's what it looks like to me. Well, you know, what happens then when you're not talking about um, uneducated people? I've had conversations with people who are doctors and lawyers and bankers and, you know, whether it's college or postgraduate degrees. Also, perpetuating this big lie that the election was stolen. I even had one. He was a doctor. He turned around and he said to me, but what about the box of ballots that were underneath the desk that we saw on television? You want to talk about what you see and what you hear? Well, how do then you explain that box of ballots that was underneath the desk that was headed for the shredder? So I said, okay, let me say this to you. Anytime that you see a box of documents, we'll call them ballots, right, in a cardboard box saying Trump ballots headed to Shredder, you got to understand that that's a prop, right? Only an idiot would believe that somebody would turn around and say, oh, here, I collected all of it. I mean, it's, it's funny that we have to talk about it. It's that fucking stupid. But I collected all the ballots that said I want Trump for president, and I put it into a cardboard box, and I write in a Sharpie on the outside, Trump ballots to be shredded. That's a problem, not for you, not for me, not for anybody that's not brainwashed like I was when I was working for Trump. But this is somebody that actually put some Visine in their eyes this morning, and they're able to see straight, and they're able to acknowledged the fact that the man lost the election for primarily two reasons. One, the chaos that he brought to Washington 
was unprecedented, and I think people were just tired of it. Trump derangement syndrome, Trump fatigue, Trump whatever the fuck you want to call it, I've had enough of you, right? And the other, of course, is the pandemic, right? Failure to listen to somebody like a Dr. Anthony Fauci or Dr. Burks, experts in epidemiology, who said to him outright, you need to get new hospitalizations under 10,000, or you're going to have an ugly, ugly um, winter, and then it's going to only get worse. And exactly as Fauci called it is exactly what happened. And then you started seeing 100,000, 110, 150, 200, now up to 578,000 dead Americans, right? So everybody in this country, as far as I'm concerned, knows somebody who either was gravely ill or passed as a direct result of COVID. And the blood of those deceased rests in the hands of Donald Trump. And he could say whatever he wants about the flu and how people die from the flu. It's nonsense. He himself knew exactly the dangers of this disease, of this virus, right? To the extent that, again, remember I told you, he doesn't read. He only he only learns things by listening to other people. And if that person is demented, like a Steve Bannon or a Steve Miller, then you have some real problems on your hands. But he refused to listen to the likes of Dr. Fauci because it was not in his best interest. And I always say this, that Donald Trump needed the adulation of these big crowds, like you need oxygen to breathe. And so he ignored the same virus, the pandemic that put him into right into Walter Reed Hospital and ended up again killing 570 plus thousand Americans. So when I say that this is what caused Donald Trump the election, it was not stolen from him. He bungled this the most important thing that any of us have seen right in the last 100 years. And that's why he lost it. He was ignorant and arrogant in how he dealt with it, to the extent that he even talked to Woodward about it in his book. That certainly didn't help. So that's that's why I believe um, this whole thing is out of control. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, amplifying that a little bit, it, it's really interesting to consider what might have happened if Trump had actually taken the virus more seriously. If he had just listened to his experts and just been a little bit quiet, Instead of concluding that his uh, short-term interests required him to go into straight-up denial about it and to pretend it wasn't a serious problem and count on his ability to lie his way out of it, then he very well might have won re-election. He wouldn't even have had to. He would have. He wouldn't have had to do much. He could have just let the experts tell him what to do, and he just could have deferred. I. Right. I mean, you would you have a much, a much deeper personal experience of this guy than than most of us do. And so you probably have a visceral feel for why that's not an option for him. Well, it's not an option because that would mean somebody in the room is smarter than him. And he knows, sadly, that it's every single person in the room is smarter than he is. And so he cannot take the advice of anybody. It has to be his idea. But not only the virus, because you're dead on when it comes to that. Had he handled this pandemic better, he would have he would have won the election. Hey, everybody. My eyesight is pretty rough these days. Some of it's simply because I'm getting older. But there's also the fact that I spent decades reading legal documents with tiny print. 
And then there's the hours I spent um, inside prison reading in very low light. And nothing destroys your eyes faster than squinting at a paperback for six hours in a darkened cell. And now with my podcast, my new book, and even more documents to read, I get headaches, eye strain, and crazy migraines like you wouldn't believe. Recently, though, a friend introduced me to Blue Blocks. After trying several pairs, I settled on their summer glow blue light glasses. There's no magic. I simply put them on during the day when working with screens or under artificial light. I tried just about everything before I got a pair of these bad boys, including a couple of expensive prescription frames that seemed to just make matters worse. Blue blocks just work better. Here's some of the finer points about blue blocks. They're made in optics laboratories in Australia, not mass-produced in factories in Asia. The frames are super stylish that and have been featured in Vogue. They're constructed with science-backed technology, tested to ensure they work, unlike other blue light glass companies. They're a little more expensive than other brands, but they're worth every penny just to have gotten rid of those migraines. Besides, you get what you pay for. After getting my Summer Glow blue light glasses from Blue Blocks, I felt immediate relief, not just from digital eye strain, but my migraines and my headaches lessened as well. Plus, the cool yellow lenses make me look, well, like a rock star. Glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. Blue Blocks has glasses for every need. Blue light for helping digital eye strain. Summer Glow for helping with low mood and migraines. And Sleep Plus for improving your sleep. Blue Blocks also has other amazing products, such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, and 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. Blue Blocks ship worldwide in rapid time. Easy returns and exchanges. So go to blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15% on your order. That's blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15%. But I'll tell you something. One of the things that we talked about since 2015 was the very first bill that Donald Trump would put forth was supposed to be that infrastructure bill, which is why he ran around the country, around the world, collecting 250 billion from the Arab Emirates, 250 from China, 250 billion from Japan, and then using Steve Mnuchin's knowledge of Wall Street, how to run a bunch of Series A and E bonds for ten times multiple, having seven and a half trillion dollars, right, to invest in infrastructure in the United States. Had he done that instead of that? ridiculous and stupid and foolish Muslim ban, not not immigration ban, not controls. It was a Muslim ban. Had he done infrastructure bill, he would have he wouldn't even have had to have run for a second term. It would have been automatic. That's just how that's how myopic Donald Trump thinks. And it's interesting because if you go back to the 2017 or just after the 2016 election, Steve Bannon gave a, a, a now pretty uh, memorable interview in which he said, we're going to throw two or three trillion dollars at infrastructure. We're going to build things all over the country. We're going to realign the whole working class behind a conservative kind of populist Trump Trumpist movement. I got to tell you, I, I thought a lot of Democrats would look at that and get pretty damn worried. Right. Because here was a guy who had maybe he had prevailed in an incredibly close election, lost the popular vote, only won by a, a real handful and pulled an inside straight in the electoral college. 
But if he could have gone out there and done some big popular stuff that broke with the Republican Party orthodoxy, then who knows what would have happened. And then, of course, it was Bannon and Miller who lurched right into the crazy Muslim ban stuff. So the problem runs pretty deep there, right? This whole kind of populist routine that they had developed turned out to be just a total scam. Yep, and that's what he is. He's a scam artist. But, Greg, in your April 21st column, you wrote about the reaction to the Derek Chauvin verdict from MAGA uh, creature Tucker Carlson and QAnon queen Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, both share a uniformly apocalyptic view that a crackdown on police brutality will somehow lead to civil collapse. And you wrote, and I quote, we talk constantly about the radicalization of figures such as Carlson and Green and of the GOP. But we don't talk much about how uniformly this radicalization derives its justification from a kind of shared original wellspring, which is a violently hyperbolic depiction of the left. If you would, unpack for me where this depiction of the left originated and why it's such a potent symbol in today's outrage-laced discourse. Well, I'll tell you, you know... um On the right, this type of depiction of the left goes back many decades, right? You can you can go back to the civil rights era when civil rights uh, protesters were depicted as communists and right up through uh, uh, Buchanan's campaign in the 90s and so forth. And it's not an old it's, it's an old story, this type of depiction of the left as kind of monolithic and radical and and you know, the conflation of liberals and Marxists into one big bad thing. And, but you know, I think we actually saw some of Trump kind of set this tone on July 4th. He went out there and, and I don't know who wrote this speech. I got to think it was probably someone like Stephen Miller, but it was always Stephen Miller. Yes. He was always the always the ha- hidden hand, right? That's correct. Yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty sure this this sounds exactly like Miller, but Trump warned that a far left fascism was taking over the country, right? And that this would essentially justify going after the protesters. And then after that, he had all his top national security and law enforcement officials hype the Antifa threat in order to tar the um, to tar the protests against police brutality and give Trump something to run on. And even at the same time, he was spending tens of millions of dollars on these ads that showed, I, I believe, I may, be, I may have these details wrong, but I'm pretty sure that one of the ads that Trump was running at exactly the moment he was tarring the protesters and having all his top officials do that, right? One of the ads had a frightened old woman inside a house with a kind of marauder or, or an intruder kind of going around the house, circling it like, like a vulture, <laughs> Right. And and so, you know, this Trumpist kind of narrative about the about the left burning down cities, about AOC and the socialists always, you know, the focus is often on the non-white ones in Congress. Right. The Democrats um, really carried through to this moment. And, and I think that there there hasn't even been kind of a Republican reckoning in the sense that they're not willing to renounce this whole idea that the left is this you know, immensely terrifying and destructive force. Uh, and so that becomes the justification for everything the right wants to do now, right? So they can just say, oh, well, you know, the election was stolen by this terrible left, so well, we can try and reverse it. Or they can say, oh, well, 
you know, the left will use all these tactics against us so we can just suppress the vote. You know, we're in the right. Everything ends up turning out to justify their own anti-democratic conduct. And they usually just invent an excuse for it. And that's really what I'm talking about when I say that, you know, that this this kind of radicalization is rooted in a kind of hysterical anti-leftism. Look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance. She endorsed political violence and she did that by saying, in essence, something like, you know, if we lose this election, the country will go to hell and it'll collapse. Right. So that justifies us being potentially violent. You see what I mean? But so did Ted Cruz. So did Josh Hawley. So did Donald Trump Jr. Right. They stood there at that insurrection before crowds of people who were there with zip ties and bear spray and firearms and knives and whatever else that they would get, sticks, bats, you name it. Well, what did you think was going to happen when you tell them to take the Capitol, right? And Donald Trump himself saying, I'll see you there. I'll see you there, right? Oh, my people, my people, right? I know Donald Trump like the back of my hand. And I'm telling you, the second that that coward got off of that stage and was put into the beast and escorted to the elevator up to the residence in the White House, turned on all three television sets in his room to various different, to Fox, to ABC, to NBC, whatever, right? MSNBC, CNN, you name it. So that he could watch the insurrection taking place in awe of the fact that there were Tens of thousands of people there with Trump 2020 flags, with people in paramilitary gear, you know, waving around the MAGA flag. This to him was the greatest because he actually thought it was going to work. And he thought that if it worked, there was a chance that he could become an autocrat. This is exactly if you can't get the military to be on your side for this. Get the civilian military to be a, try to convert, you know, a third of this country or a hundred million supporters to get out there with pitchforks, right? It's very hard to fight a hundred million people. That's the crazy that was going on inside that empty space between Trump's ears. He actually thought he was going to pull off a coup and that he was going to become a monarch, a dictator. That's exactly what he always wanted to be. He don't want to be president of the United States. That means you actually have to legislate. You have to deal with the House, right? And he doesn't want to have to deal with Congress or the Senate. He doesn't want somebody telling him like a Chuck Schumer that you're a fucking dope or have to listen to somebody like Nancy Pelosi telling him or that you don't know what you're talking about and ripping up his speech, right? He wants to be able to like the way he was at the Trump Organization. Michael, task. Go do it. Otherwise, you know, off with your head. Right. That's really what he wanted. But I do want to also, we're talking about stupidity and, you know, people like Tucker Carlson, who I've met Tucker before, and I didn't think that he was as insane as I believe him to be now. But if you would, can you discuss with my listeners the derivation of the word conspiracism and how it applies to both Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, conspiracism is basically uh, kind of a habit of mind in which the person committing it essentially completely unshackles themselves from any obligation to reality of any kind. It's, it's different from 
conspiracy theories, which kind of, you know, broadly hold that something actually happened, right? If, you, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you'll say something like 9-11 was an inside job. You'll make an actual claim about something, right? As ridiculous as it is, it's a claim. Whereas conspiracism is sort of more like a, an intellectual posture where you just sort of tell yourself, you know, you, you kind of free yourself to be as inventive as you want. And then that's, that's what we're seeing with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker, right? They're essentially freeing themselves to turn the left into something so insanely exaggerated and so terrifying and so monolithic and, and so ferociously destructive that once that's been done, they can justify anything they want uh, on the part of their own side. And, and I think that's a real problem, right? I mean, we're seeing this all over the place with a lot of the Republicans, right? We talk about the big lie and that almost kind of, that's accurate enough, but it sort of underplays how serious this is, right? It's, they're not just saying, oh, the election was stolen from Trump. They're saying the left is willing to do anything to take power. So we can do, we can, we're just, anything we do is just fighting back. We're just, we're just, you know, the victims and we're being, we're, we're restoring justice, so to speak. So I guess in essence, it's kind of like a conspiracy theory coupled with mysticism, right? And the bad part is that you have people like Tucker Carlson, who has a pretty significant audience there on Fox News. Now, how Fox continues to let this this fool just continue to perpetuate, it's not just lies, but it's dangerous ideology and and comments. And then you have, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's become the poster child for stupidity. And the press covers her, the media, television, right, cable news, they cover her because she's such a fucking debacle. She's just such a, a mess, right? It's like driving past a car accident on the highway and why everybody slows down to see, to see the damage that's done. That's what's happening here. She's taking over media simply because they don't want to miss the next stupid thing that's going to come out of her mouth that they can talk about for the next four, six, eight, twelve hours. That's really what it is. Yeah, and by the way, even if the media weren't going to cover her, right, the problem's still there because the media is so fractured right now that there are all kinds of channels through which her her craziness will get out to the target audience. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene really emerging now. They can they can build their own following through all sorts of fractured media networks that you know, and, and by the way, I think the internet, the inter- innovations from the internet have been largely good for politics, but at the same time, it creates these kinds of channels by which these these real sociopaths can kind of emerge with their own power base, kind of out of nothing. And it's you know, it's uh, it's 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 pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, it's not just amazing; it's scary. But Greg, you retweeted 
a New York Magazine piece from Ed Kilgore that was discussing many of these ideas, as well as the notion that, and I quote, a key feature of the derangement of today's Trumpists, their systematic rejection of verifiable reality in favor of ideological systems that interpret everything according to an antagonistic depiction of the left as virtually demonic. Now, I see this playing out in ways small and big, but I'm curious if you could walk my listeners through how this manifests itself from right-wing media on down and is filtered into a set of fabricated talking points for the rank-and-file MAGA fanatic whose entire life is seemingly dictated by his or her opposition to liberalism and to Democrats. Well, this is what I've been talking about, right? Like, this is this is what Ed got there, I think, he put it really well. This is the kind of anti-leftist derangement I'm talking about, which essentially just continues to go ever, ever deeper into crazy hyperbole and depicting this tyrannical, terrifying threat. I don't know if you watch some of the, and by the way, this is actually kind of a mainstream thing with the Republicans a lot of the time, unfortunately. So for instance, if you, I watched a bunch of the ads that were running in the Georgia Senate race, or, you know, at the very end there. And a lot of them were just the same stuff, right? And this was, this. neither of them is really starts out as a Trumpist, right? David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, the two senators, right? You know, David Perdue's kind of a bit more of a conventional conservative. Kelly Loeffler is like a donor, Republican donor, big donor type turned, you know, candidate and so forth. And neither of them's a real, you don't think of them as being Matt Gates or... Right. Or or um, or or any of anyone from that cast. And yet they're running ads that show cities burning down. Right. AOC and Bernie and, you know, the squad looking menacing and preparing to take all your private property away from you. So this thing goes real deep, this kind of continual portrayal of the leftist enemy as this terrifying thing. And and I just I wish Republicans would stop doing that. Right. Just stop doing that. It's just bullshit. It's endless bullshit. And at a certain point, they've got to let go of that type of political lying. Well, just think about what Trump did, for example, to Ilhan Omar, right, uh, where you know, he attacked her simply because she was wearing a headdress, simply because, again, his entire view of the world is so myopic. It's white dominated. And it's not that Donald Trump has a hatred for black people. He does not. Right. He just wants to keep the status quo the way that it is. Now, some will argue and say, well, then that's a hatred, right, for black and brown. It's it's not. In other words, you know, he just doesn't believe that his place in society, his status quo should be interfered by anyone that is not white. I mean, and that's a really dangerous, dangerous mentality for the president of the United States, because so many times that we used to talk about, you know, why I created that national diversity coalition for Trump in the first place was to show him, Mr. Trump, you cannot win this election by basically appealing only to the Southern White Christian Coalition. 
There's just not enough voters to pull it off. You're going to need to embrace right minorities, Spanish, black, brown, you know, Asian. You have to reach out to them. And so that was the whole purpose of the diversity coalition. Now, he was happy that I created this um, coalition with at that time it was Pastor Scott. He was happy, but not because it included minorities into his orbit because he didn't care about them as people. He only saw it as a way for him to ultimately win. And the fact that these people wanted him to win, that they allegedly adored him, which is the way that we would explain it to him, that was enough for him to accept them and to appear at you know one or two events or you know that they would throw in his honor. Because but for explaining to him the adulation of these groups, he wouldn't even have shown up even if they were part of the diversity coalition. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing. I'll tell you one thing I've I've long not been able to understand about Trump, and maybe you could shed some light on this, um, is where the white nationalism comes from. So, you know, you had those lawsuits that he was uh, getting hammered by in the real estate world, right, that were with that involved racial discrimination. And then he also sort of was a big figure in all those tabloid wars in New York where, and I think a lot of this has probably shaped Trump's mentality, right? You know, in the nineties, it was like, if I can pick a fight with Sharpton or whatever, I'm just picking that name out of a hat, right? It'll, it'll be great. It'll be great tabloid fodder. Right. And so he probably liked that kind of, you know, racially charged fighting, where, where, where does the white nationalism come from? And how did Stephen Miller eventually get his hooks into Trump? I want to understand that dynamic. I've never understood it. Well, let me start with the easier question. Steve Miller, he ended up getting his hooks in because he was cheap when he was in the campaign. Trump saw in his ability to extract that sort of um, horrific sense of views that Donald Trump has, and he was able to put it on paper in a way that Donald Trump was able to use. And that's how Steve Miller ended up staying there. He basically had Donald Trump's voice down packed as it amounted to racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, right? This was something that Stephen Miller was able to capture because that's who Stephen Miller is as well. But as it relates to, you know, your first question, the hatred for or the issues that existed with Trump and the black community with the Mitchell Lamas that his father owned that he was running at the time, that was simply Donald Trump's crazy perception that black people don't pay rent that they give you a hard time as tenants and that worse that they're dirty and that they, you know, create devaluation of the asset. And that's why they didn't want black people in their Michelamas because they thought that all that comes from Fred and they thought that, you know, a white person would not want to live next to a black person because the black person is dirty and that, that they will devalue the property or the interest in residing at that property. That's where it came from. And good for the courts in holding him responsible. 
But Greg, as we're winding down the hour, I just have one last question for you. Can you explain to my listeners what is actually going on with Tucker Carlson's replacement theory of immigration? Because you wrote in your April 23rd column that it's finding wide appeal among the right. What specifically is the replacement narrative and why is it dangerous as a mode of thinking? So the replacement story takes different forms, but the general gist of it is that elites are trying to import immigrants in order to replace virtuous native U.S. voters, i.e. white voters. And the way Tucker kind of presented it was in a slightly softer version where it was like, okay, Democrats just want to bring in immigrants in order to win elections. And I'm just making a racially neutral point, he says, right? It's just about politics. They just want to win. They're, they're not trying to replace white people because they prefer minorities to whites. They just want to win elections, right? But, but the darker and, and sort of more despicable implication of it is that elites are actually trying to eliminate whites by bringing in the immigrants. And, and Tucker comes very close to the edge of saying that. I don't think he's ever quite said it in those terms, but that's what it means to a lot of people. And that's why you saw um, white supremacists and white nationalists come out with great joy at what Tucker said. They understood exactly what his implication uh, was. And, and by the way, as I've tried to argue in some of these pieces, you know, if we decide to, as, as a citizenry, if we decide we want to let in more immigrants to become citizens, if our elected representatives do that, they've won elections legitimately, we've elected them to represent us. If they expand the, the polity to include immigrants, then that's a democratic decision. It's not a threat to democracy. It's the opposite. Um, and, and, I'm more, <laughs> and, you know, I, I just worry that, uh, that, that we lose something if we focus only on Tucker's claim that Democrats want to win elections. It's a much darker thing than that. Um, can I ask you one last question before we go? Well, I just had one. I just had one comment on on that whole thing. Yeah. Because here's what Tucker Carlson fails to acknowledge or to realize or to accept as fact. See, this show is not predicated on innuendo. We're predicated on fact. And what Tucker Carlson fails to understand or realize that this replacement theory is absolutely inaccurate as Trump and so many other as so many other Republicans lost their elections without these new immigrants that Carlson is talking about being introduced into the system. So therefore, it just doesn't make any sense. No matter how you want to slice it, it just doesn't make any sense. They lost the White House, not because they brought in, you know, a million immigrants that are going to vote Democrat. They lost because Trump's an asshole. It's just that simple that the better of the two candidates won. Now, mind you, I want to be very clear, too, to the listeners that this is not an anti-Trump podcast, right? We will discuss Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the same way that we will talk about Donald Trump. But here's the difference. First and foremost, Biden has empathy. You could see it when he talks. There are times I'm afraid he's going to break down, to which, of course, the right-wing um, media would just jump all over him as calling him soft, um, the same way they used to do that to Boehner. However, at the same point in time, you know, this is... this. 
is just this whole theory is just wrong and it just it needs to stop is really what i'm trying to say it just needs to stop and joe biden there are other things that biden is not doing that he made promises on and we will be discussing that with other guests coming up for example prison reform something that i have now become very involved with and i'm passionate about or immigration as we're talking about right now there are things that he made promises of and while he's doing a fantastic job in the pandemic uh, vaccination rollout a plan that trump never even had right We give him credit for that. We give him credit for the stimulus. We give him credit for that. But where he makes mistakes, we will hold him accountable to the same mistakes that we hold Trump responsible. It's just so much easier to talk about Trump because everything he did was a fucking mistake. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you, Michael, if I could. Uh, You've been around Trump and his legal travails for a very long time, and you probably know how to read his signs pretty well. Is he legally vulnerable right now? What's your what's your take on that? Where's that going? What do you see? What signs do you see coming from him? Well, I think he knows that there are significant issues that are looming over his head, not just with the New York Attorney General Tish James, not just with the District Attorney here in New York Cyrus Vance Jr., but as well as in Georgia now, as well as in Washington regarding the presidential inaugural. Um, committee, something that Stephanie Winston Walcoff uh, is very active and working with the folks there. But it's a multitude of different states that are now looking at things that Trump did pre-presidency, presidency, and now post-presidency, including what he did by you know, um, bilking his own supporters out of money with that website that they created. You know, it's everything that he does, people have to understand, has an ulterior motive. He is a grifter. And, you know, to do that to his supporters is really the lowest of the low. But Greg, I really want to thank you for, you know, your time today, your insight. And all we can do is hope, right? Indeed. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Now, thank you so much. And now for today's mea culpa. In 40 or 50 years, when they write about Donald Trump's presidency, it will be mainly to discuss the ugly, racist populism he unleashed, which fundamentally altered the face of the modern GOP. It will be said that in 2016 and into 2021, the party of Lincoln became the party of white rage, conspiracy, and disinformation. Ultimately, though, what started as a joke, a marketing blitz for the Trump organization, turned into a frightening fucking reality when the country revealed itself to be teeming with anger, fear, and racism. They clung hard to the MAGA mantle and took it up as gospel, forcing the GOP to remake itself around their demands and in their image. I'm not sure where or when it will end. There really is no way to put the cork back in the bottle on what Donald Trump has now unleashed. This may simply be the way things are moving forward. This devolution might mean that politics in the modern era does truly become blood sport. I used to worry about a smarter, slicker, more capable and less compromised version of Donald Trump picking up the mantle and taking the MAGA agenda to new extremes. But in this era of reflexive hatred and demonization of the left, all we need is another Rudy Giuliani. 
under the sanction of Donald Trump, he committed fucking treason and sold out his countrymen in an effort to dig up dirt on his political opponent. He was then protected from within by a culpable Justice Department stocked with Trump cronies and aided by a willing right-wing industrial complex that feasted on fake stories about Hunter Biden and all sorts of other bullshit. That he was a willing dupe of the Russian intelligence, a useful idiot for Putin, did not matter one iota to the MAGA horde. It was enough that he had dirt on Biden. In short, Giuliani appears to have been more than willing to enter into a criminal conspiracy against the United States by assisting Russian efforts to interfere in the 2020 election and then to attack the legitimacy of that election with bogus claims of election fraud. But none of that matters in a world where Tucker Carlson has the last word and owning the libs is the highest ideal. Once a troll, always a troll. And God help us all. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.